I am dropping by to give a quick overview of the subject teaching and assessment of literature studies. Well, today I've been better compared to the last time I talked to you. Thank you. So I hope you guys are too. All better and well as you listen to this podcast. Well, as you remember, uh, I have given you a vocabulary test last time, right? So how was it? How did the test make you feel? I would be collecting answers of these questions and more in uh, one of our breakout sessions in the near future. Don't worry. But surely, uh, I can imagine that some may have a bit of torment while answering that. I had to. <laughs> it may be understandable as that kind of assessment or test in, in simple terms may put us with a certain amount of pressure with all those what they call as obscure vocabularies and the time limit. If you correctly, however, identify three items well done, you just exceeded the average. That means something. But honestly speaking, that was not an appropriate example of uh, a classroom-based assessment, uh, nor is it intended to be. It was simply an illustration of how such kind of assessments and tests make us feel much of the time, right? Well, however, we cannot deny the fact that they are everywhere. I mean, those kind of tests and assessments are everywhere. But these kind, these kinds of assessments are more like teaching and assessing language and literature in isolation. We do not do that anymore. We are trying to, to teach and assess language and literature in context, especially with the advent of the communicative language teaching. Uh, we're trying to teach and assess language and literature in more practical ways that students would learn from and get to use in their everyday life activities. In as much as us. Um, although it is equally noted that functional English is also helpful nowadays because uh, that's what commerce, that's what economics, that's what business and tourism or hospitality uh, demand than the usual uh, literature discussion class that makes use of the communicative language teaching and learning process. However, the point here is that in as much as we try to cultivate love for reading and 
appreciation of literary works, we have to go one step ahead of that notion. What I am trying to say is we have to develop in us literary competencies. You as future language and literature teachers should equip yourselves with that because that you will have to teach to your future students. Well, if you are going to check the Philippine Professional Standards for Teachers or the PPST, uh, I will have to provide you with the syllabus uh, which is which puts emphasis on the domains and indicators expected from beginning teachers or beginner teachers based on the Philippine professional standards for teachers. So I will have to upload that anytime soon. The point of the matter is that this course, the heart, the heart of this course is literature studies. But you don't just stop with its appreciation and comprehension. We are trying to make it a goal to develop among our students the necessary literature competencies. I will have a relative article uh, posted in the classroom for you to scrutinize and discuss again in one of our future breakout sessions how you feel about that and how you think about that okay but these literary competencies are a must are a must because uh, we can never appreciate really a literary work without it it's not enough that you read it, you comprehend it, and you appreciate it. Because you'll do better than that if we will have to set and condition certain skills to, to have an implicit understanding of what we call the operations of the literary discourse. In simple terms, uh, we don't just say the story was good, the character was good, the plot was good. We have to set skills in order for us to delve deeper into it. So we have to recognize the intrinsic elements which construct a literary work, no matter how simple that work is. Like for example, in a certain short story, we need to have these elements constructed uh, in order to, to sharpen the skills needed among our students. So, say for example, in teaching short story, you might start by introducing an intrinsic element which constructs the short story. What could be that element? What do you have in mind? The character, of course the character. How many characters are there in the story, you might ask. Which one is the main character? Which is the protagonist? Which is the antagonist? Is he good? 
is she bad? Then you can move on to another element, like the plot. What happens to the character? And so on and so forth. So by doing that, the students will be gradually aware of how the story is built. Therefore, you get to increase their awareness to construct meaning, which is one step towards literary competence. So the point is that it is not something automatically learned. Literary competence is never automatically learned. It has stages that one has to go through, that one has to equip himself or herself with in order to uh, obtain literary competence. And in our Philippine curriculum, it has been stipulated that these competencies have to be obtained by our students. In our K-12 uh, English curriculum, we will have to touch that sooner or later in one of our sessions. So don't worry. All right. So to wrap up this one, uh, I will just have to give you a heads up that those are the 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 important points in a nutshell that you would have to take note of and and make it a goal to prioritize because we have to adopt this competency-based learning materials in teaching literature in a way that will respond to the various linguistic, cultural, socioeconomic, and even religious backgrounds of the learners. So you will have to be familiarized with those range of assessment strategies. And by the way, uh, a probable learning plan, according to that of the English curricula, will have to be developed that uh, encourages higher order thinking skills of the learners through the use of the literary text. And then a corresponding demonstration, teaching demo, perhaps, of out of that plan can be produced using uh, innovative teaching principles, skills, and strategies for teaching literature. We'll have to elaborate more on these things when uh, I get to talk to you virtually or real time. Uh, for the meantime, that's all about it. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Good afternoon, guys. Um, it's nice to have you here. Uh, just like what we have discussed last meeting, uh, we will try to meet halfway with our meetings and with our circumstances, whatever uh, are possible for uh, most of us. So here we are. I hope that at this point you're able to open this and listen to this podcast um, just for me to be able to maximize the time with you in such a way that we are still on this uh, blended type of learning. Well, anyway, um, this episode is basically for me to be able to share with you uh, some readings 
on folklore in Philippine schools. Um, this is mainly more on pre-war period and then a bit of the post-war period and hopefully up until this day in which you will be able to help me um, understand insights in so far as the current situation of teaching is concerned. Now, getting back to our objective, oh, by the way, this reference is from uh, Damiana Eugenio, one of uh, great writers of folklore in the Philippines. Um, Filipinos, you know, have uh, taken note of the study of folklore and the teaching of folklore for quite some time already, in fairness. <clears throat> but then, it is uh, remarkable that when folklore started to be taught in Philippine schools, it cannot now be determined with any exactness, actually. But it seems quite certain that the early American teachers who collected and studied Philippine folklore also introduced it to our schools. Now, that might be a surprise for some, but yes, you try to recall our history and these colonizers will always be a part of our history, our culture, our lifestyle, and all that. And that even includes our way with folklore and stories and myths and legends, etc., etc. So, much of the, the collection of folk narratives then, according to what I've said earlier, uh, we owe them to the American teachers who were assigned to the Philippines during the early part of the American occupation. Um, they are namely Burton Maxfield and W.H. Millington. Uh, Maxfield and Millington assigned, were assigned to Iloilo and Manduriao in Panay. And they were able to publish a total of 26 Visayan legends and folktales collected from their Filipino co-teachers and students. Uh, working among the Tagalogs, Gardner collected and published a total of 23 folktales, 12 legends, 2 Tagalog versions of Cinderella, and one version of Aladdin. That is something. Another substantial collection of Tagalog legends and folktales was that compiled in 1908 by Ratcliffe Lucetta, uh, an American teacher assigned to Laguna. Circulated in manuscript form for some time under the title The Laguna Sketchbook, the collection was later expanded and published in 1949 under the title Filipino Folktale. As published, it contains 22 legends and 20 folktales. And three folktales were also published in 1908 by Clara Kern Baylis. Uh, as for the elementary level, an examination of the records of the Director of Education seems to indicate that at first the folklore materials taught to Filipino children were foreign. That's not surprising. Um, 
the, the annual report for 1902, take note, recorded the arrival of 10,000 copies of Grimm's fairy tales. Now, this is a Western uh, tale. And 10,000 copies of 50 famous stories. Two years after that, it contained the announcement, the same uh, report. I mean, two years after that previous report, it contained an announcement that, was quite, that among the textbooks written or especially adapted for use in the Philippines was Philippine Folklore by John Morris Miller. Um, he is one of the famous names in... What's that? <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Assigned to collect, gather, uh, folklore and good thing I was able to retrieve in an old copy in which copy I am going to upload in the classroom and you might be enjoying your time reading those tales it will be uploaded I think I've already uploaded it earlier let me just recheck that but try to check your your classroom today and later so as you, you will be able to get your own copy and read them ahead of time now, going back to Miller, uh, I mean, that was entitled Philippine Folklore. So, it's basically just a collection of different folklores gathered by him. Um, Washington Irving's The Alhambra was among the textbooks ordered during 1904 to 1905. The Book of Legends by Scudder was listed as a supplementary reader in the annual report for 1921 and was probably in use before that. As you can see, I am trying to give you a timeline of some sort of how folklore studies came into picture in the Philippines, okay? So, then came this one, take note, the Philippine readers in the 1920s. These were published in seven volumes by Camilo Osias, the earliest series of readers containing folklore written by a Filipino. That was the first. So this was first listed as supplementary readers in 1920, but by 1923 it had been adopted as a textbook. Okay? It had been adopted as a textbook in 1923. This series continued to be used until the early post-war period. So... Every volume of that con contains a general sampling of Philippine folk literature. But books 5 and 7 contain the greatest number of folklore collections. 11 legends and folk tales in book 5 and 8 selections in book 7. So there was myth, essay, legend, customs, folk tales, and so on and so forth. So I think some of our... Uh, colleagues, well, uh, let's say just old colleagues or anyone you know for that matter, uh, probably first encountered Philippine folk stories such as Why the Sky is High and The Legend of the First Bananas in that series. So the tales, moreover, were authentic folklore, having been taken from such early collectors as... Uh, foreigners named Cole, MC, Warm, Alfred, and some collectors of Fansler and uh, 
bear. I will talk uh, a little about this too later. And one admirable feature of these uh, notably uh, remarkable Ossias readers was that the Philippine tales were presented side by side with foreign tales. So there were Philippine tales, but then there were also foreign tales like that one I told you earlier, the Grimm's Brothers. Uh, uh, authors from Hans Christian Andersen were, were actually... Who, who are actually notable authors too insofar as lit children's literature and relative literature is concerned. Now, uh, that was more on the elementary folklore, uh, uh, elementary folklore uh, studies. Well, what about uh, on the secondary level on the secondary level there appears to be a reduction of uh, folklore content in the different courses meaning to say if the elementary uh, the attempts to incorporate folklore for children were probably to me more enriched than the attempts for uh the secondary school subjects because elementary school subjects made use of folklore materials were several than in the secondary because in the secondary there appeared to be uh, much reduced folklore content. As you go through this reference which I'm going to upload to in the classroom you will be able to read the history and the nature of how Philippine curricula so far have taken this folklore content into our Philippine schools. So you'll be the judge yourselves uh, through our upcoming discussion soon on, on how the Philippine curriculum is addressing such issues and concerns. But then... Uh, most notable among these attempts are by Fansler. You might be familiar with him. Uh, Fansler was from UP. The full name is Professor Dean S. Fansler. Because on the tertiary level, folklore came to be a part of the curriculum in 1910, at least in the UP. So this was the year of founding of a certain college of liberal arts which uh, primarily offered those folklore courses. So it was the pioneer uh, attempt by Professor Fansler. And it was considered the most substantial and most scholarly collection of legends made by him. So, folk tales, it was the folk tales before the war, okay? Uh, that, that was entitled Filipino Popular Tales that contained 64 folk tales and 18 legends collected from Christian Filipino students of the University of the Philippines from 1908 to 1914. Because, um, according to my readings, 1914, it was the time when 
the courses, the folklore courses in UP were no longer offered since Fansler resigned. But even if he resigned, there were um, successors who tried to, to continue uh, what he started. But then it was already in a different sort of, no, not different, but it was more on a different college or approach by then H. Oatley Bayer. So, it was more among the courses in, an, in anthropology that Bayer institute, instituted this folklore studies. Of course, they are relevant and relative with one another. As you, see, as you can see, these two are, are great collectors of folklore. But then, uh, Fansler was more of someone who paid attention to the interpretation and pedagogy of this folklore content to our setting. Uh, unlike Bayer, who was more like just a big-time collector of folklore. But both of them have made a lot of contribution to this folklore uh, history. In Philippine school uh, curriculum. Moving on, uh, the tales of Fansler were carefully chosen to display to advantage really the richness and the variety of different tales, especially in the Christian Filipino folk narrative tradition. But just as interesting as the tales in the collection are the excellent comparative notes which Fansler provided for each tale. This was what I was telling you earlier, that Fansler was more into the content, and he cited all the variant forms and analogs, even local and foreign, within his knowledge, and pointed out possible influence and any striking motives present in the tale. So, uh, Fansler's manuscript collection of about 4,000 folk narratives, take note, he described... It briefly in a certain publication in 1930s. Uh, in his articles, he accumulated these tales, according to him, over a period of 28 years. 28 years. So, you might be asking, where is this rich collection? It might not be even available online. Yes, that's true. Sadly, uh, part of it has survived, but I think a numerous amount uh, has been in the, the University of the Philippines main library but then according to records there were only 19 out of 76 individual collectors volumes have survived so these 19 surviving volumes contain a total of some 974 tales so all in all it was like only more than a thousand out of the four thousand texts of that manuscript collection have survived. The rest have not been totally lost. Uh, to totally lost, however, for luckily there were research tools that have been prepared. But you know, and a few of them survived. But you know, I have uh, come across some readings that there was a time in our history that during the war, 
libraries were affected, some were burnt down, and of course, that was not surprising to know if these collections were not traceable any longer. So, it was such a loss. That is why um, this has been one of the major concerns insofar as folklore studies is concerned, which we will have to do something about uh, the latter part of our sessions. Because this poses a major issue as to folklores being extinct nowadays. So since we are teachers, um, they would always say that we play a great role in trying to preserve this kind of representation of our culture. Which I think agree. So um, part of the part of the references and readings I'm going to share with you are the textbooks in the Philippine curriculum up until let me check up until oh this is what only up until the time of Marcos uh, attempts to encourage uh, folklore studies and folklore teaching in the curriculum you see, there were some sort of officials, public officials, who tried their best to provide provisions for Philippine schools to encourage uh, an enriched folklore content in such a way that will help develop um, the culture of patriotism, for one, uh, love of the family, um, individuality and so on and so forth you know Filipino culture and values uh, being uh, graced in these textbooks in these in these instructional materials there were attempts uh, uh, such as that of President uh, Quezon's and that of President Marcos that there were even times when they would have to send some teachers to some uh, areas, remote areas, just to collect these folklore stories, legends, myths, and would have to record them, and would have to retrieve them according to the native language, and try to translate them, and send it to DepEd, send them to DepEd, things like that. You know, these are very good efforts. And I just actually found it out recently and that is a nice uh, that is a nice initiative which I think right now is quite um, worthwhile to to imitate to if and when possible for us just just for the sake of, of preserving and trying to uh, collect and retain what's still left for us in so far as folklore studies is concerned so i will have to to upload this and try to uh read well on the part of how our textbooks or our curriculum the different curricula i mean have been uh dealing with folklore content according to 
the instructional materials, the textbooks, and the curricula that we have been using, we have been following. And interestingly, you yourselves, since most of you are in, are at DepEd, you will be able to check or verify the information and the truth to this and the veracity of the assumptions contained in the readings. So I want you to read that part specially and we try we will try to discuss what you think about it in a form of what do you call that? Uh, uh, yeah that one. A reaction paper which you will have to submit next meeting. So it's a written form. You just have to put uh, the title on top. I will provide the format uh, in the GC and then sort of a reaction paper on uh, what you have read. And then we, I will have to call you one by one next time to discuss about what you have written because this is a relevant issue before we get to proceed with the rest of our topics. So we will have a basic foundation on how uh, folklore content is being dealt with in the Philippines, especially in the areas where you are teaching. All right. Uh, I have more uh, concerns, but these things I will just have to address in the GC since um, the podcast may not be accommodating much of the time I was planning to to. So, uh, you just have to keep posted with some other information and announcements via the platforms that we have. Okay? So, for now, uh, I will just have to say goodbye and I'll talk to you next time. Okay? Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye.